You are listening to the Midtown Church Podcast, a ministry that exists to make Jesus known. I do want to encourage you now to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You are in the early stages of a series in the book of 1 Corinthians. I know it's going to be a great blessing to you, and I count it as a great privilege to be able to come and share with you as part of your series. We're going to be looking at verses 18 to 31 in chapter 1 this morning, and I entitled this message, The Gospel-Shaped Church. So we're going to read the passage in a minute. But before we get there, I just want to set this up by telling you, maybe reminding you, that in the early 2000s, there was a proliferation of books with gospel-centered or Christ-centered in the title of those books. Uh, The number of books that was published between about 2003 and 2015 that either had the title gospel-centered or Christ-centered or some variation on that, the number of books published like that is staggering. And these were books that aimed to put the gospel front and center for all of us. The message of Jesus' death and resurrection is the thing that we're supposed to be shaped by in all areas of life. There were books on Christian living, like the gospel-centered life, and the gospel-driven life, and the gospel in life, and the gospel for real life. There were books on gospel-centered ministry, like gospel-centered discipleship, and gospel-centered leadership, and Christ-centered preaching, and Christ-centered worship. And there were books on the Christian family, the the gospel-centered family, like gospel-shaped women, or gospel powered women and gospel-powered parenting and the gospel-centered marriage. The descriptions, gospel-centered and Christ-centered, became kind of buzzwords to describe Christian ministries and churches and individuals. And the intent behind all of those efforts and those works and that movement was good. It was that we need to rediscover the beauty of the gospel and have it shape everything that we do. But by the end of a decade, or a little bit more than a decade of such efforts, it wasn't clear if terms like gospel-centered and Christ-centered were really theological distinctions or just a sales strategy. Just tack gospel-centered on to the title of your book, and you've got a bestseller. So what does it actually mean to say that we are gospel-centered or Christ-centered or shaped by the gospel? What does it mean for a church to say that it is a gospel-shaped ministry? Well, I think the passage we're looking at today has something to say about that. So I want you to hear now the reading of God's Word from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to read from verse 18 to the end of the chapter, and this is what it says. For the word of cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, 
It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers, or brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Well, it's a great passage. And again, the question, what does it mean for a church to be shaped by the gospel? So I want to say two main things in answer to that question. The first thing is, that it means that we place the message of the cross front and center, even though we know it divides. So last week you looked at a passage that dealt with unhealthy divisions in the church, in the church in Corinth in particular. The church in Corinth was being divided along the lines of personal preference for certain teachers. I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, that sort of thing. That's an unhealthy type of division. But there is a healthy type of division. There is a time and place. There are some issues about we must clearly choose between two sides or positions. I'm either in this camp or I'm in that camp. Now, we understand that in regard to trivial things. So let me illustrate that by taking you all the way back to the distant past of the year 2015. One of the biggest controversies that happened that year, it became known as Dressgate. And it began when a Scottish singer, Caitlin McNeil, posted a picture of a dress that a friend's mother had worn to a wedding. That simple post generated millions, actually millions of responses. About half of the people were adamant that the dress was white and gold, and the other half of people were just as adamant that it was blue and black. You were either in the white and gold camp or you were in the black and blue camp and everyone weighed in on this. Celebrities and news personalities and average people. And it was an interesting phenomenon because it demonstrated the way that the same image can produce radically different responses. And that internet controversy was then followed up a couple of, a couple of years later by another controversy. Maybe you remember this one. This one came in the form of a short audio clip. And the clip consisted of just one word that was repeated over and over. And those listening either heard Yanny or Laurel. And that clip was viewed some 41 million times. And again, people were just as adamant. Either you were in the Yanny camp or you were in the Laurel camp. And that clip demonstrated the same thing that the dress controversy did, that you can hear the same thing and be divided over it. 
have radically different responses to it. This is exactly what we see in regards to the cross or the message of the cross. Listen again to verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So we either think that the cross is utter foolishness or we think that we are going to cling to it with everything we have because it is the power of God for our salvation. The message of the cross divides. Now, since that is true, we might wonder then, well, why put it at the center? I mean, why not kind of let it fade to the background a little bit? Why don't we put the teachings of Jesus front and center? Why not the love of neighbor? Why don't we make that the thing that's front and center? Well, part of the reason is because the cross is the dividing point. See, a person can have great respect for the teaching of Jesus. They, may, they might have great admiration for the life of Jesus. But sooner or later, they have to decide what to do with the death of Jesus. And you will either view the death of Jesus as a great tragedy, a waste of human potential because his life was cut so short, or you will see it as the greatest news you've ever heard because it results in your salvation. So I wonder how you view it today. As you came in this morning, how do you think about the cross? Do you see it as this message that repels or a message that attracts you to Jesus even more. The cross at the center. The apostle Paul was crystal clear about this. It's why he will go on to say things like this in this letter. He'll, he'll say it in the passage you're looking at next week. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's why although he addresses a wide range of issues in the Corinthian church, he will always circle back to the cross again and again. It's why he will say, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The message of the cross occupies the place of first importance in the church, or it ought to occupy the place of first importance. You know, even our language reflects the fact that the cross has stood at the center of the Christian faith for the last 2,000 years. Our English word cross comes from the Latin word crux. So when we say, well, the crux of the argument is such and such, what we're really saying is, look, without this, the argument would fall apart completely. Everything hinges on this. And that's what's true about the cross. Everything depends on it. The word crucial also derives from this same root. So when we label something as the crucial point for you to understand, what we are really saying is just as the cross is central to the Christian faith, so this point is central to what I'm saying. The cross stands front and center. Now, most religions, most ideologies have some type of visual symbol that represents a significant feature of its beliefs. So the lotus flower, 
is often used as a symbol for Buddhism. Its wheel-like shape is thought to signify the cycle of birth and death and the way that beauty can emerge out of muddy waters. Islam is symbolized by a crescent and a star. Other ideologies have their symbols. You're familiar with them. The communists adopted the hammer and the sickle as a symbol of the union of the industrial worker and the peasant. Every faith, every ideology has a symbol And one of the most shocking things is that the symbol of the Christian faith is the cross. I I mean, just, just think about that fact for a minute. There could have been any number of symbols chosen to represent the Christian faith. The church could have chosen a manger to communicate Jesus' incarnation, that he entered into this world as a helpless baby. Maybe that should be the dominant symbol. We could have chosen a throne because Jesus is the king of the universe. That could have been the main symbol. We might have chosen the symbol of a dove because just as the Holy Spirit descended in the form of a dove on Jesus, so now he descends on every believer. We might have chosen the empty tomb with a stone rolled away from its opening as a way to say Christ is risen. All of those things are true. All of them are essential aspects of the Christian faith. But it is the cross that stands at the center of it all. There is no gospel. There is no good news without the death of Jesus on our behalf. Now, I think we all know that. The cross is like the big E on the I chart. I mean, if you miss this, you miss the whole thing, right? We all know that. And yet I think we also all know that the cross The message of the cross divides. Paul's argument in verses 19 to 21 is that the message of the cross is at odds with the wisdom of the world. He says, for it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world. And how did he make it foolish? Well, he made it foolish by what he accomplished on the cross. The message of the cross is inherently foolish to the world. It doesn't mean that they can't understand it. It means that they will not accept it or receive it. Now, people have trouble with the message of the cross for different reasons. Listen again to what it says in verses 22 and 23. He says, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So Paul refers here to the two dominant cultures of his day, the Jews and the Greeks. And the issues were different, but the cross was a problem for both of them. Specifically, Paul says that the message of the cross is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles or to the Greeks. And it's interesting that he differentiates between those two groups. The cross is a stumbling block to the Jews. Literally, it's something that trips them up. It's something they just can't get past. So what is it or what was it about the cross that made it such a stumbling block to the Jews? Well, there's an interesting passage in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy that says this. 
And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and if he is put to, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. That passage says that God's curse is upon the man who hangs on a tree. Now, we know that Jesus wasn't technically hung on a tree. He was crucified on a Roman cross, but it's interesting to notice just how often the New Testament actually refers to Jesus being hung on a tree. So the book of Acts records the birth of the church and the way the gospel spread all over the Roman empire. It records the sermons that were preached as part of that. And in Acts chapter five, Peter and the apostles are being questioned by the high priest and they say this, the God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. In Acts chapter 10, the apostle Peter preaches to a man named Cornelius and says, and we are witnesses of all that he did. That's all that Jesus did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. In Acts 13, the apostle Paul comes to the city of Antioch and he delivers this message about Jesus. He says, for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Why the tree? We see the same thing in the letters of the New Testament. So 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And then in Galatians chapter three, the apostle Paul puts it this way. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So why a tree? And we could say, well, a cross is made out of wood and, and wood comes from a tree. But, but I don't think that's the reason the New Testament writers seem to go out of their way to reference a tree. The reason is related to the passage I read you from the book of Deuteronomy. See, every time we see a reference to the tree, we are reminded that the most horrific part about Jesus' death on the cross was not the physical anguish that he suffered. The most horrific part of Jesus' death on the, on the cross is that he endured the wrath of God. He became a curse for us. And that was a stumbling block to the Jews. And it's a stumbling block to many people in our day as well. Islam, for example, rejects the notion of a sin-bearing savior. According to the Quran, each person reaps what they sow. They reap the fruit of their own deeds. And while Islam recognizes Jesus as a prophet, there's no place for the cross. To the Muslim line, it is unthinkable that a major prophet of God would meet such an undignified end. 
if you ever tried to share the gospel with a Muslim, you know that the cross is a stumbling block to them. It's a stumbling block for lots of people. Paul says that the message of the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews and it's folly to the Gentiles. And folly is just kind of a nice way of saying they think we're crazy for worshiping a crucified savior. You know, the oldest surviving picture of the crucifixion is found on the wall of an ancient house on Palestine Hill in Rome. The drawing is actually a piece of graffiti. It's ancient graffiti. It depicts a man with the head of a donkey hanging on a cross while another man stands at the foot of the cross with his arm lifted in worship. And the inscription underneath the picture says, Alexamanos worships his God. How ridiculous is that? That's what the picture is, is portraying. The message of the cross is folly. It's foolishness. Lots of people feel that way about it. I remember listening to the radio a number of years ago as Brian Stiller, the former president of the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada, was being interviewed by Bill Good. And Stiller made the comment that Christianity is the only organization that required you to admit that you are a miserable sinner before you can gain membership. And Bill Good responded by saying, that's precisely the problem I have with Christianity. I'm a good person. And not just because of his name. In fact, that is the problem lots of people have with Christianity. They see themselves as good people. Maybe they need a bit of fine tuning here and there. But they don't see themselves as sinners in desperate need of God's grace. That's what the cross proclaims. Apart from Jesus' death, we could never have a right relationship with God. Now, Paul said the preaching of the cross was foolishness to those who were perishing. Why was it foolish to them? Well, part of it, no doubt, was the horror of the cross itself. People are drawn to power and might, not a naked and bleeding savior. But isn't part of the reason people think of the cross as foolishness is because it means that these are the depths that God had to go to to rescue you and me? See, there's a reason the message of the cross is seen as foolishness or offensive. And the reason is because it declares this is what it takes to make us right with God. We, we like to think of ourselves as good people. I mean, we work hard. We pay our taxes, or at least we pay most of them. We, we try to tell the truth most of the time. We recycle, <laughs> right? We put, our, we put our organics into the green bin. I mean, we're good people. But the cross tells us that we could never measure up to God's standards because God demands perfection. And the message of the gospel is not try harder to be a better person, but recognize that you need a sinless substitute to take your place. That's the good news of the gospel. And this is the difference between Christianity and every other religion. Every other religion will tell you to present your best record to God. Christianity tells us that Jesus has presented his best record on our behalf. Message of the cross is a stumbling block to Jews and it's folly to the Gentiles. But then Paul goes on to say this in verses 23 and 24. 
but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So what are the implications for the church? I think the implications are that we will either preach the wisdom of the world or we will preach the foolishness of the cross. And one of the temptations arising from the fact that the message of the cross divides is to downplay it or to make it secondary. This is an American example, but I want you to listen to the mailer that was sent out by one church plant as a way to attract new people. Hi, neighbor. At last, a new church for those who have given up on church services. Let's face it, many people aren't active in church these days. Why? Too often the sermons are boring. Don't say amen. And don't relate to real life. Many churches seem more interested in your wallet than you. Members are unfriendly. You wonder about the quality of the nursery care for your little ones. Do you think attending church should be enjoyable? Well, we've got good news for you. Valley Church is a new church designed to meet your needs. At Valley Church, you will meet new friends, get to know your neighbors, enjoy exciting music with a contemporary flavor, hear positive, practical messages which uplift you each week, how to feel good about yourself, how to overcome depression, how to have a full and successful life, learning to handle your money without it handling you, the secrets of successful family living, how to overcome stress. Why not get a lift instead of a letdown this Sunday? Now, I understand the heart behind that. At least I think I do. But there's actually nothing there that you can't get from Dr. Phil or many other places. And I've benefited, benefited a great deal from Christian parenting books and Christian marriage books and Christian finance books. But listen, you can lose weight. You can stop smoking. You can improve your marriage. You can manage your money well. And you can become a nicer person without Jesus. As Michael Horton put it, what distinguishes Christianity at its heart, it's not its moral code, but its story. And what is its story? Its story is that the creator of the universe, though rejected by those he created, stooped to reconcile them through the death of his son. That's the good news of the gospel. That's why we put the cross front and center, not as a way to scare people off, but to offer something you can't find anywhere else. I was together with a group of church planters a few years back and we were having a conversation about what each of our gatherings looked like. And one of them said, well, at their church, they don't do the Lord's Supper or communion at all because it's a bit awkward to do it when visitors are present. They might not really understand what's going on. They might feel excluded if they don't participate. Now, that might be a legitimate concern, but from a biblical perspective, the opposite is actually true. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says this. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this 
in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then he said, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. See, what we're doing as we celebrate communion as a church, as a body of believers, is we are rehearsing the story. We are proclaiming the Lord's death. Whatever else the message might have been about on a Sunday morning, it's always ultimately about Jesus. And we always come back to the cross. I will tell you, our church now is 11 years old and probably the most, not probably, for sure, the most common question I've had from people who are new to our church is why do you do communion every week? Now, I should maybe just as an aside tell you the second most common question or the, the actual, the, the time where my email lit up like no other was when we actually switched the, the communion bread to gluten-free bread. I mean, everyone kind of lost it. It was like, what is going on at this church? We switched back. It lasted two weeks. That was it. The reason we do it each week and the reason you do it each week as well is because every time we gather, we want to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We want to remind each other that the reason we gather like this, the reason we worship, the reason we have hope is because of Jesus' death and his resurrection. And the simple reality is that we forget this. So this ties in with the second thing it means to say that a church is shaped by the gospel. And that is that it means that our confidence is not in ourselves or our performance or our gifts, but in Jesus and what he has done. And I take this from the last part of the passage in verses 26 to 31. Now, if ever there was an encouraging Bible verse, verse 26 is it. For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. And then the beginning of verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. This is the polar opposite of the message we hear all the time. I mean, from the moment we are born, we continually hear, you're special. That's why 80% of people think of themselves as above average because we're constantly told we're so special. Paul says, can I just remind all of you that you're a bunch of average people, not the brightest, not the richest, not the most powerful, just the most average. Now you saw last week that one of the problems in the church in Corinth was that people were attaching themselves to particular teachers as a way to increase their own self-importance or self-worth. I follow Paul or I follow Apollos. The Corinthians were into name dropping. Look, if I'm aligned with this person or if I'm aligned with this movement, it's a way for me to increase my social standing or my standing in the sight of God. And Paul tells them that if that is their mindset, they have the wrong idea altogether. You do not gain your standing in the kingdom of God based on who, you're, who you attach yourself to. But more than that, Paul wants them to understand that no amount of worldly wisdom or power or pedigree will earn them favor with God. 
And so he counsels them to go back and think about where they came from. He says, consider your calling brothers or consider your calling brothers and sisters. And when he says that, he does not mean consider the great calling that you've been given in Christ, though that is true of them as well. What he means is consider who you were at the time you were called. Go back and think about what it was that you possessed that made God say, I want that person. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. The reason God called them into relationship was not because they possessed a superior intellect or held a prominent position in society or came from the right family. This has already been hinted at in chapter one, but intellect, influence, and pedigree were the dominant currencies in the ancient world. If you wanted a place at the table, you had to show why you belonged. And the Christians in Corinth were beginning to take their cues from the surrounding culture. And Paul basically says, okay, if you want to play that game, let me hold up a mirror for you. Let me just remind you who you actually are or who you actually were. If you're going to play the game according to those rules, you're going to lose. You're not that special. In the same way, we could go around the room today, and even though I don't know most of you at all, I could almost guarantee you that when it comes to the things that our world values, intellect, influence, finances, most of you would be pretty ordinary. Now, some of you might actually have been born into wealthy families, or maybe you were really successful in building your business. So I think it's important to note that Paul doesn't say none of you were wise or powerful or of noble birth, but not many of you were those things. Lady Huntington was part of the English aristocracy in the 1700s. She was dramatically converted under the ministry of George Whitfield. She was fond of saying that she was saved by the letter M. And what she meant by that was that the Bible declares not many were of noble birth, not, not any were of noble birth. See, Paul's point is not it's impossible for the wealthy and the influential to be saved, but that no one is saved on that basis. That's not why God chose these particular people in Corinth, and that's not why God chose you and me either. Having said that, though, I do think it's worth saying that there's something that comes along with worldly wisdom or worldly power or worldly wealth or noble birth that often makes it difficult for people to respond to the gospel. So, a way to illustrate that. We could take another example from Lady Huntington's life. Having come to faith through Whitfield's preaching, she invited one of her friends, the Duchess of, Be of Buckingham, to come and hear him preach. Her friend attended, but she was not quite so taken with Whitfield's message. And she wrote the following words to Lady Huntington. She said, it is monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl on the earth. This is highly offensive and insulting. And I cannot but wonder that your ladyship should relish any sentiment so much at variance with high rank and good breeding. Well, you can see her point, right? She's part of the nobility. She's been well-bred and well-educated. What possible need could she have for a savior? And Paul tells the Corinthians, and by extension, he tells us, look, go back and remember who you were at the time of your calling. Now, I think when he says that, 
it doesn't just mean we go back and we look at our level of education or what our social standing might have been. All of us ought to regularly go back and remember who we were without Christ. Listen to what Paul wrote to the Christians at Colossae. He said, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Before coming to Christ, every single one of us was alienated from God, hostile in mind to him. But now he has reconciled us to himself and presented us to God. It's important to remember where we came from. So if those are not the reasons that God chose us, what is? Well, I think the answer is found in verses 27 to 29, where it says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Part of what it means for a church to be shaped by the gospel is that its people understand that they are just ordinary people who've been called into a relationship by a gracious God. That's the best thing that can be said about us. There's a description of Peter and John in the book of Acts that I hope would be the kind of thing that people would say about all of us. And there it says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. The thing that stood out about Peter and John was not their rock star status. They were just ordinary. The thing that stood out about them was that they had been with Jesus. That's the best testimony that we can give. That we understand there's nothing special about me. Jesus has done all of it. If salvation depended upon us and our performance, it would either lead us to despair or to pride. I mean, either we would say, look, I'm never going to measure up. I'm never going to be the person I'm supposed to be. I can't seem to get there. Or we would say, you know what? I'm actually a little bit smarter, maybe a little bit wealthier, maybe just a little more, you know, well-bred than that guy. We might even say both of those things, depending on the day and depending on our performance that day. But verses 28 and 29 help us understand that God didn't choose us because we were anything special. And then verse 30 says this. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Jesus is our wisdom. Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus is our sanctification. Jesus is our redemption. And since that is true, it means that as a church, we don't see ourselves as anything special. Our goal is not to say, well, we do this better than anyone else, or we've got better people than you can find anywhere else. Or like the Corinthians would later say, you know, we've got these gifts that no one else seems to have. 
Our goal instead is to say with one voice that we have a Savior who has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. He has made us right with God because of his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his resurrection from the dead. Jesus is our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. So what do we say in response to all of that? I think what we say is the words we've already sung this morning. I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Let's pray. Father, this is our prayer, that our boast would be not in ourselves and what we have done, but in you and what you have done. Lord, I pray for Midtown Church. I pray as they go from this place, as they scatter all over the city of Vancouver and elsewhere, I pray that the fact that you have redeemed them by the death of Jesus would be the thing that marks them, that people would say of them. There's nothing special about them, but I recognize they've been with Jesus. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Midtown, please go to midtownchurch.com.